I'm Jago Wexler, and you're listening to the Melting Pot Cast, which I think I've pronounced right, but who knows? You're listening to the Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. This is my life. Happy now. New Year. Are you done? Yes. Okay. Yeah! Happy New Year. January 1st! You can talk now. Hey, Lexicon of Sewers and Word Shows. I lied. To- oh, God. Welcome to episode 55 of the Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, AF Grappin. I'm the important one, Aaron Kazmark. That's Aaron. Grill the, mistress. The grill mistress to the stars. To the stars. You yeah. know why? Because you guys are the stars. I was going to say the star-shaped cookie cutters. I love cookies. Okay. Happy New Year. We, we've already done that. We can calm, chill. But it's 2018. It's 2018. Holy crap. I don't know where last year went. But I'm ready to put it in the past. Yep. In a lot of ways that shall remain nameless. Let it go. Let it go. Okay, now let it go. Okay. 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 Well, I say... I can sing better than you. uh, Yes, you can. After... Okay, after... As awesome as this last these last few months were, once we finally got settled back into our rhythm, uh, had some really good main ingredient stories. Had that awesome uh, patron backer only episode. Well, and then there was the uh, you know stories that covered how many prompts. Uh, don't even get me started on that. Like twelve. It was awesome. Twelve, yeah, something like that. But oh my gosh! So I say we kick twenty eighteen off with a bang. What do you say? Boom. How about we kick it off with a main ingredient story then? That's probably a better idea. Great. This is a story that we've had sitting in our queue for a while, actually. it's just, It's been hard getting off the ground, especially with what happened this last summer. Doing main ingredient stories was tough. All the voices, all the narration, coordinating the time. I mean, I was, life happens, right? I was, I was pretty much running the show by myself for a couple of months, which, which you know, I can do. It, it needed to happen, but in order to put together a main ingredient, we needed more time and more people. And we wanted to do this story justice. Yeah, and I think we finally have. Awesome. So without further ado, let's listen to World's End by James Silverstein. Bon appetit. World's End by James Silverstein. It was 5 a.m. on June the 20th, and the world stubbornly refused to end. I stared at the ceiling for an hour. It had become a little ritual. Stare, and think of the nightmares from the previous evening. Stare as my muscles started to unclench and let me move again. Stare and hoped that whatever horror my psyche had stirred up would wash away. I finally managed to sit up and get out of bed. 
shave, shower, move to the kitchen, and make myself some oatmeal. Eat noiselessly. Finally, I had to get dressed, and that meant going back into the bedroom. I was awake now, so I could see all the cards. Condolence. 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 Names I barely recognized. Platitudes. It had only been five weeks, and I'd gotten completely used to them. What I still wasn't used to was the bed. Too big for just me. Maybe that's where the nightmares were coming from. They were curled up on the empty part of the bed, waiting to embrace me when I slept. I'm not a poetic man by nature, but that thought made sense to me. Maybe when Gary and Cindy came the following weekend to commiserate and bring up my little great-nephew, they'd help me get a new bed, too. Maybe get rid of the old one. The thought took me a long time to process. Finally, I gave up. I sat down on the edge of the bed and buttoned my shirt, made sure everything I needed was in my pockets or clipped to the belt. Then I got up to leave. I still caught myself saying goodbye to no one at all as I left the empty house. June had been royally hot. Even at 7 a.m., kids were looking for shade and trying to convince Mr. Patterson to open the fire hydrant on Maine. He'd never done it before. I doubted he'd do it that day. But I guess hope springs eternal in the minds of the young. I pulled into the office. Bill and Wayne were drinking coffee, and Wayne had his feet up on his desk while he munched a donut. I cleared my throat as I walked in, and immediately the pastry vanished while Wayne assumed a dignified position, as much as his gut would allow. "'What's it looking like this morning, fellas?' I said. "'Gonna go down to Mabel's place,' Bill responded. "'She says kids broke into her coop, did some damage. Carried off a chicken!' I shook my head and sat at my desk. "'You got paperwork filled out for it?' No, but we will have. See that you do. I know the paperwork was the least favorite part of the entire shebang for those two. I think they joined the force because they thought it was going to be much more Wild West. I've had more than one case hinge on a note that was made, or the proper information put in a filing cabinet, though. So I've been a stickler. Anything past that? Some nasty graffiti at the Dexter place. Take statements, I grumbled. Lily and Ben Dexter were a mixed couple. No one in town liked them. Now, I know it's considered uncivilized to look down at the undead, but illegal is illegal. I just couldn't wrap my head around Ben's choice. I'm sure Lily was perfectly wonderful when she was alive, but... Oh, some fad called. My train of thought was derailed by Wayne's comment as he and Bill were getting ready to leave. Excuse me? Wayne's brow furrowed as he tried to remember details. Some fed said he'd stop by today. Does this fed have a name? A bureau? 
a reason to be here? Again, the furrowed brow. After a minute or three. Mm. Sorry, chief. You really aren't that useful to me alive, are you? Wayne looked vaguely hurt. Sorry, chief. I sighed and waved him off. Just go. Call in if there's a problem. I'll take care of him, chief. Bill said, and half dragged Wayne out of the office. Within an hour, I was finishing off some paperwork and taking little moments in between reports to fill out the crossword puzzle. The local paper had hired some new kid from Chicago to make the puzzles, and I had to admit that the mental exercise was something I missed from my days on the forest back in the Windy City. That and, quite frankly, nothing else. I had Wendy to thank for that. She and I had been introduced by friends while I was still walking a beat. It was all a whirlwind. We went to clubs and spent time at the movies. I'd visit her at the office she worked at, and I'd never met anyone like her. We were married a year after we met. It was only two months later that the whole thing in Chicago exploded. It was in the papers, the necromancy scandal. I was in the precinct that it occurred in. I won't say I was unaware of what was going on. I will say I wasn't part of it. But that really didn't matter. Everyone was getting it in the neck. And even after I was cleared by internal affairs, my record was so bad there was no way I was ever getting promoted again. Wendy's sister-in-law Ellen lived out here and had come down sick. Real bad. I remember sitting in my little apartment with Wendy. It was freezing. She was reading a letter from down here. I was trying to figure out what to do next. And a light went on. I mean, literally. A bulb we kind of figured was dead in the kitchen popped back on, then burst. We both jumped. Then we looked at each other and... Wendy started laughing. And when she did, I did. It was like... We both knew. We knew we had to come down here to Three Pines. We were so welcome at first. Wendy looked after her sister and I got a job on the force. With my experience and, I don't mean to brag, my quick mind, I helped put a murder and two burglaries off the active caseload within five months. Everyone started looking at me and Wendy as pillars of the community. When Chief Hunkel had to retire due to his coronary, the town got behind giving me his job. I was never so honored in my life. But life turns funny sometimes. Wendy's sister-in-law got better fast, and Wendy started looking for something new to do. She talked to me about starting a vegetable garden. I was going to look at seed catalogs with her. I'm at work that day, and I get the emergency call. Wendy's unconscious at the hospital. I drive there like I'm the only one on the road. I get there five minutes after she dies. Brain hemorrhage. I just stare at her, there in bed. We had less than two years together. I spent the next three weeks collecting condolence cards while staring at the bottom of the bottle. Two weeks ago, I got myself clean and sober and came back into work. 
I keep waiting for the rest of the world to hurry up and end. All the good parts are gone. Five letters, second letter O. Where Bombazine? I was still fiddling with that one. I didn't know what Bombazine was. When a man in a black suit walked in. Conrad's a little town. I know everyone by sight and name. The police station is in the middle of town, so we rarely get people stopping in to ask for directions. This could only be one guy. I stood. I'm John Macy. You must be from Washington. The man kept an odd distance from me, as if somehow the Texas dust would rub off on him and contaminate him completely. A nod followed, instead of a handshake. Agent Driver, you're the chief of police here? I nodded back and sat again, motioning for him to take a chair. How can I help you, Agent? He stubbornly refused to sit, which irked me more than a little. Are you aware of the necromancy going on in your town, Chief? I arced an eyebrow. Ben Dexter's married to a ghoul. She wasn't created locally. No one to arrest. Agent Driver's expression didn't waver. Not what I'm talking about. You've got a full-blown necromancer here in Three Pines. Within the next two hours, they're going to animate at least three corpses in violation of the necromantic act of... I know, it's illegal. I cut him off. You could have just called and let me know. I'd have taken care of it. I did call. He said. When I did, I figured out your deputy is a simpleton. Won't argue there, I replied. Still, could have handled it. The agent shook his head as he stood. This is out of your league. I was only making a courtesy call. Angrily, I stood. No, wait just a damn minute. Courtesy call. I didn't want the local law out of the loop. I'm coming with you. You're not. This is my town, goddammit! He paused, then shook his head. All right. Not talking you out of this. If you want to follow, I can't stop you. But stay out of my way. I started scratching a note for Bill and Wayne. Who are we picking up? Ellen Constance. Know her? My blood froze. I tried not to show my horror as I nodded. She's the town librarian. The agent didn't mind as I rode along with him. While I was silent and tried to put on my best stone face, my mind was frantically trying to find a way to make this all not be true. It couldn't have been. Ellen had been everything to my wife. Everything. Wendy had sat beside Ellen's bed throughout her sickness. I remember sitting with her, too, when I had time. I would hold Wendy and say that everything would be better, and eventually it was. It took time for Ellen's strength to recover. Wendy and I would take turns visiting her at her home, and each time she was so grateful for our cares and concerns. She'd never had anyone looking after her before. There was a day... You ever kill a zombie before, Mr. Macy? The agent's question snapped me back out of my confused reverie. No, I admitted. Headshot? Yeah. It's not as easy as it sounds. Remember two things. Zombies aren't smart like you or me. They can't even handle doors. 
Also, if the necromancer dies, the zombies go down too, and necromancers tend to be a lot easier to kill. My gut sank as we pulled into the library parking lot. One car there. Ellen's. How do you know she's a necromancer? I asked as we got out of the car. He gave me a stern look. Vital intelligence. Classified. Now wait just a damn minute! Classified. He said. And that was that. He walked quickly and with purpose towards the front door. He was drawing his sidearm as I followed. The front door was unlocked and slightly ajar. All the curtains were drawn, but there were still fingers of light creeping in at the edges of the windows. The dancing dust motes made the room reminiscent of early summer days. Days where Ellen and I would meet here before the place would open, before I'd go to work. The agent motioned for silence, then pointed at me and the stacks to the right. He began to work towards the shelves on the other end of the room, not looking to see if I'd followed his instructions. I began to serpentine up and down the rows, hoping this was all some fever dream. A year before, Ellen had held me close in the row I was in. It had been our first illicit kiss. The thrill and guilt was coming back now, twisted into a nightmare. This couldn't be true. It, it couldn't be. I cornered around the biography shelves and heard the slightest noise from below me, beneath the floorboards. A little groan coming up through the grate. I didn't want this to be so. It couldn't be so. Ellen had found another lover. That had to be it. The dark mourning and guilt that had consumed her after Wendy died had finally worn off, and she'd found someone else. I could be okay with that. That had to be it. Agent Driver hissed across the room at me and pointed with his sidearm toward the stairs to the basement. I froze for half a moment, then nodded following him there. He gently pulled the door open and looked down into the darkness. The scent that bubbled up was one of the dead. It wasn't just necromancy. I'd had enough dealings with zombies in the past to know their scent. This was pure putrescence. Bodies were decaying down there. I held back a gag that almost made me lose my breakfast and followed Agent Driver down into the darkness. Instinctively, I reached for the light switch at the bottom of the stairs, but the agent hissed and grabbed my hand. The basement of the library was L-shaped and we were at the base. Groans echoed throughout the place and the darkness made it impossible to tell where Ellen might have been. I wanted so much to call out to get her to come and give herself up. More than that, I just wanted all of this not to be true. But the shuffling of feet in the darkness shattered that dream. I looked to Driver, and he looked back to me. The tables had turned. He had less idea than I did what was down here, and was looking for some sort of guidance. I checked my pistol once, then holstered it and motioned for him to follow as I creeped down the hall ahead of us one hand extended, hoping against hope I'd find nothing. Driver was close on my heels. I had to cut short when my hand brushed against a desk that had been moved out into the hall, but the agent wasn't so perceptive. He ran into me, and I stumbled forward, cracking my shin against the desk which resounded with a metallic thump. The groans raised in volume. 
Panicking, I ran forward. No groans were coming from ahead of us, and if we could make it into a room, we'd be safe. We got to the periodical archive, and Driver quickly and quietly clicked the door closed behind us, then let out a sigh of relief. He crossed over to a desk on the other side of the room and clicked on the tiny desk light, then turned to me, a look of anger crossing his features. What the hell did you do? He growled at me. You ran into me. I ran into the desk. If you hadn't been so damn close... I tried to keep my voice down. He held up a hand, and his anger vanished. Sorry. We're close on this one, but the zombies are going to be looking for us now. What other rooms does this place have? Janitor's closet and the office at the far end of the hall out there. He nodded. Okay. We lie low here until the zombies decide there's nothing going on. Then we run like hares to the other end and put a stop to this. That work for you? I nodded, but didn't say anything. I could hear the zombies getting closer. I stepped back from the door and waited for them to go away. There were a few dead groans outside and then a thump at the door. Then another one. The groans grew in volume. Then stopped. I didn't get to breathe my sigh of relief. The door handle started turning. Driver's eyes went wide as he went for his gun. Headshots, he reminded me. I didn't need to be told twice. I didn't need to be told twice. The forty-four I'd used to put down six zombies in a cold Chicago alley sprung to my hand. But maybe I'd just gotten old. The door flung open, and I couldn't step back fast enough. I got whacked in the arm, and the report of gunfire as the pistol was knocked from my hand made my ears ring. There were four zombies coming through the door. As one of them reached for me, there was a dull explosion over the ringing. Driver had taken a shot, and a millisecond after I could feel the bullet drill past my shoulder, the head of the undead closest to me exploded. This wasn't like Chicago. There, I'd had my gun, and I'd had time to take the shot. There, the whole thing hadn't had a sick, personal touch to it. There, I hadn't known the faces of the people I was trying to put down. Brad and Sandra McKellar had died a month ago in an auto accident. Now, even with their faces mangled, they were recognizable as they grabbed my arm and my jacket. Driver was screaming something behind me, but whatever it was, I couldn't hear it. I yanked hard against Brad's grip, and the fact that the auto accident had broken Brad's legs seemed to be in my favor. He toppled heavily, and I tried to backpedal, but we both pitched over a desk behind me. I cracked my head on the floor, and the ringing in my ears now was joined by sparks dancing at the edge of my vision. Brad, don't do this, I growled. I knew it didn't mean anything. Even if these things had some infernal intelligence, they would have been under the thrall of whatever necromancer had raised them. Brad put his hands around my throat, and I heard another gunshot explosion, then another. I grabbed Brad's fingers and started bending them backward, normally enough to get someone to let go, but a zombie feels no pain. Still, I swear I could see something in Brad's eyes as the bones snapped. If they could think, could they feel? I saw Sandra fall with a ragged hole just above her left eye as I struggled free from Brad. He came at me again, flailing hard, his nails tearing my cheek. 
I cursed as I scrambled and kicked hard. Brad's weight was off me and my pistol was only a few feet away. I threw myself across the floor and spun after my hands found the pistol's grip. Across the floor from me, Brad sat, unmoving. I stood, staring for a moment before I finally realized. My kick had forced Brad back and impaled him on the leg of the overturned desk. He twitched, trying to free himself, but the damage I'd done to his hands made that impossible. Kill him. Driver's voice was finally coming clear. I raised the gun. My hand started to shake. This was Brad McKellar, the guy who'd helped me fix Wendy's radio back in June. The guy whose funeral I'd gone to and even said a few words about his kindness and loyalty. He tried to kill me, but that was only because of the necromancer. Brad had been my friend. The entire top of Brad's head exploded. Driver had taken the decision away from me. That was it, then. No one could have ignored the sound of Driver's gun. I had almost been deafened by it, but there was no mistaking the frustrated, panicked look on his face as he raced down the hall toward the offices. I clicked on the hall light, which was just as well as he was about to run into some shelving, and took off after him like my shoes were on fire. I was two steps behind the agent as he rounded the corner in the offices. The smell of the dead was overpowering in the entryway, and every ounce of my being told me I didn't want to go in there. But in the previous few weeks, I'd become inured to the aura that surrounds death, and I could only feel my blood run cold as I pushed myself around the corner. It was Ellen. Of course. It couldn't not have been her. She stood in a circle drawn in what I could only assume was blood. Hers, or someone else's, I'll never know. She had laid out corpses, three of them, on tables, each with a sheet over them. She looked at me, and my heart sank. She looked so strong when we held each other in her bedroom. When she had been sick, it had always looked like the life was going out of her. Everything about her after she'd gotten well had turned to warmth and brightness. But now? Her cheeks were starting to get that unhealthy glow again. The look that Wendy had been so worried about. The one that we'd thought had just been her being sick. Now I knew where all that life force had really been going. Straight into raising the dead. I wanted to ask her how long she'd been doing it. I wanted to ask her if she'd known how much Wendy and I had wanted her well, and how we'd done everything in our power to make that happen. I wanted to tell her that she had to stop, that I couldn't let her die like that, that I'd... fallen. But I couldn't ask her any of those things, for although at that moment she didn't have any more zombies, she did have a gun, a big forty-five and it was pointed directly at Agent Driver. Driver had his gun pointed at her as well. Chief? He said, trying to remain calm. Take her into custody. Don't, she said, and there was a little throb in her voice that made my heart skip a beat. Chief! Don't do it, John. My pistol was in my hand, but I couldn't raise it. Chief Macy? I don't know what sort of relationship you and this woman have, but you have to take her in. These are crimes against God and man, and you know that. I started raising my pistol. 
Ellen turned her gaze partway towards me. John, don't. Because you love me, I said, both wishing and cursing the idea that she might confirm it. Because Wendy's alive. My hand trembled. You brought. Driver yelled something at me, but I couldn't hear him. I didn't want to hear anything else. I've been working so hard, John. Missed her so much. She began to tear up and choke out her words. But I did it. You saw. I can bring her back just as she was. No brain damage. She'll be just like she was, John. She will. Chief Macy, restrain the suspect right now. His thumb pulled back the hammer on his revolver. She began to squeeze her trigger. I saw Wendy's hand start to come out from under the sheet. I fired. Everything stood still for an infinite instance. Ellen dropped wordlessly to the floor. Wendy's arm stopped moving. It was over. I don't really remember Driver bringing me to the hospital, though it's on the official report. I was treated for a damaged eardrum and various cuts and bruises. They gave me a bottle of pills and told me to check in if things got worse. Driver told me the paperwork would be forwarded to my office. He dropped me off at home. That was the last I ever saw of him. Condolence. 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 I sat in my quiet little house, still too big for one person, and I stared at the cards for a long, long time. What did mourning mean anymore when it's possible the one you love could be brought back? I took a pill for the ache in my ribs. Then I took another one. Then I took the rest of the bottle. I laid down in my bed and wept till the darkness overcame me. But the next morning, I woke. The world once again had stubbornly refused to end. So that was fun. Except for the part where you died. I am really alive for a dead person. Yeah, I know. Did, did you, like, necromance yourself out of the grave? Because, holy crap, if necromancers could do that, that would be freaking amazing. Happy New Year. Stop singing that! Sorry. New I'm Year. excited. I, yes, I know, but New Year's... You know, a... what, you know what else gets me excited? Oh, God, what? When we get a little bit of seasoning. I love a little seasoning. Isn't it great? I like basil. That's not the seasoning I mean, but good job. Yay me.
No, I'm talking about a little seasoning when we get someone else on here and we get to talk about them. Oh, oh. When we get to ask them questions about them. You know, the the, the segment, yes, a little seasoning. A little seasoning. And yeah. I hear you had a conversation with somebody. I did. I was fortunate enough to get Django Wexler on the Skype line. That is just about the coolest name I've ever heard. I know, right? And he writes some really fascinating books. We've actually reviewed one. Um, I remember that. Yeah, we did this at some point in time, either late 2015. No, late late 2016 or early 2017. I don't remember. I I can look, but I'm not going to. We reviewed The Thousand Names by Django Wexler, which is the first of his... um, <clears throat> Shadow Campaign series, which last book is coming out very soon. Yeah, and honestly, I really need to read that series because that that review really made me want to read it. I just haven't had a whole lot of reading time. You know, buns in the oven yeah. and junior chefs and all that. <clears throat> but Django, I want to read you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to spoil the interview just a little bit and just tell you one of my favorite things that, that I took away from this. Yeah, You think of fantasy you as in me or you in a general sense both okay and you you generally kind of automatically think you say fantasy i think high elves dwarves all that what kind of a historical time period are you looking at medievalish yeah medieval probably europe particularly like englandish yeah yeah he decided to base his series off of the napoleonic era oh nice so i'm just gonna leave that right there we do discuss it Mm-hmm. So I don't want to go spoiling it, but just that. Oh my gosh. So yeah, here, here's Way the Way to interview. go outside the box. Yeah, here's the interview. Enjoy. Hey there, lexiconosaurs and word chefs. It is your head chef, AF Grappen, here for another little seasoning segment. And I have the illustrious Django Wexler. Hi, Django. Hi. Uh, Django is the author of The Thousand Names, The Guns of Empire, The Price of Valor, The Shadow Throne, The Upcoming... It's the Infernal Battalion is the next one. That's it. That's book five. The the Shadow Campaign's Quintet, as well as a couple of uh, uh, one prequel story and one mid-series short, I believe. Was that right? Yeah. The the Penitent Damned and the Shadow of Elysium. Yes. So an an absolutely fantastic series, which I'll be asking you about in a few. But uh, you also have another series, The Forbidden Library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a middle-grade fantasy series starting with The Forbidden Library. The books are The Mad Apprentice, um, The Palace of Glass, and The Fall of the Readers, which, at, you know, as of this taping, just came out yesterday. Oh, um, fantastic. So that's actually also complete, and I recommend it to everyone. I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and just put this out for the record. We're recording this on December sixth, so that would be December fifth when that came out. This episode mm-hmm. is dropping on January first. Oh, but, okay. Uh, but so I'll leave this out for a while then, but I still recommend it. Yes, absolutely. Um, so just to get things started, we have what we like to call our one question, where we ask every author who comes on here in the course of a year a single question just to get a variety on the answers. And it's usually something reg- regarding the writing craft. So, right. So our one question this year is, how do you cope with those situations when you do not feel creative, but due to deadlines or personal goals, you have to be. Hmm. I mean, that's interesting. That That's definitely one of the hardest parts of being a professional writer as opposed to just being someone who writes books. You know, I was a, a writer for many years, 
back before I was published, then, you know, you could just take a day off or a week off or whatever you needed. Uh, and that's often not an option as a professional. Um, so how do you cope? I don't really have a good answer other than you sit down and do the work. Um, it's very individual. It helps me to have a place and time. I'm very habit forming. And so, um, if, if I have a nice regular routine, that helps a lot. Um, that even if I'm not feeling good that day, I often, you know, sit down in the chair and I get my laptop out and, you know, that setting helps kind of get me in the right mode. Um, having some experience with how things end up coming out also helps. Um, you know, cause one of the things is you worry, you know, Oh God, you know, I'm not feeling good today. I'm not feeling creative. If I force this through and just, you know, is it going to turn out crappy? Am mm-hmm. I, am I going to, you know, not like this later? And I observed at some point that, you know, I've written these books and they, every book has days that I, you know, feel great and I'm just, this is awesome and I'm writing all the words and then some days when I'm just like, oh God, and I get through my quota and that's about it. Um, and when I go back to do edits, I usually can't tell which is which. Um, there'll be good parts and bad parts that need to be fixed, but they don't like match up mm-hmm. to which days I was feeling great and which days I was feeling bad. So I guess just sort of reminding myself that, you know, sometimes, you know, good stuff comes out on bad days and vice versa. I mean, the other technique I've used for the longest time is having a daily quota mm-hmm. um, because it tells you when it's okay to stop. You know, otherwise you end up feeling guilty. You know, I used to be like, I'm just going to write a lot today. And then like, what's a lot? And then, you know, I'd, I'd feel like I had to spend all my time writing Whereas, like, if I have a, a daily quota and I'm like, okay, I've done so many words and now I can go, go play video games without, you know, feeling <laughs> bad or beating myself up. Um, and that helps a lot. It's good to, you know, you need some place where you're like, okay, I have permission to lead the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, video games, the last refuge of the writer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, my vice is Breath of the Wild right now. It's fantastic. Oh, oh. I still haven't gotten myself a Switch and I'm debating... Um, I'm, like, torn on Xenoblade Chronicles, which would be my, like, I don't know, I'm a big JRPG fan, so mm-hmm. I'm yes. really going to be good. I don't know. Well, I don't I'm, know. I'm Still a JRPG inside. fan, too, and it's fan. And Breath of the Wild's fantastic. I haven't actually gotten into any of the Xenogears or Xenoblade, but I've got it on the Wii U, so I highly recommend. But <laughs> that's beside the point. Um, so you mentioned that you are very routine-driven. Have you found that having that kind of routine or mental setup can help you kind of get into that groove? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, you know, what I always say when I do these these topics at conventions, there's often like, you know, how do you write? And, you know, <clears throat> the thing I always like to say is that process is really personal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I put that as a caveat just because it means that that for any, you know, aspiring writers listening – don't take what I have to say as gospel. Everyone has to figure out exactly what works for them. Um, but for me, uh, it's super important. I know I have friends who like go out to coffee shops and work, or they just sort of snatch writing time at odd hours and I can't do it. Um, 
so I've got it set up. I've got my laptop and my couch here in my office. And every day I, at about the same time, I sit down on the couch and I start typing. Um, and then I take a break, usually to exercise. And then I come back and I do it again. Uh, and that's my work day, basically. Um, and, you know, it's adjusted over the years, you know, depending on my schedule and my girlfriend's schedule and, you know, other things. But, um, you know, once I get it set, it works out pretty well. And that just helps, you know, when you just accept that, okay, this is the thing I do at this time of the day, it makes it less like, oh, am I inspired today? Which I think is is the correct attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like, you know, this is a job This you know. Writing is not a, or writing a novel, I should say, is not a sprint. You know, it's going to take months and months. You can't, you know, race through it on the strength of inspiration. Absolutely. Um, I do want to go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about the Shadow Campaigns series. I, uh, I am a huge fan of them. I'm so, so glad to hear it. So I am going to go ahead and warn listeners, they're, they're, is potential for spoilers in this conversation. I, I do want to try to keep it out of spoiler territory, but sometimes that just can't be avoided. I, um, I'll try to avoid it, but yeah, there's always the like the fact that certain characters survive to book three is technically a spoiler. So. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of exactly how to formulate this question. I've uh, a couple of other interviews that I've seen you call, and I know a lot of other people call the sort of genre that the Shadow Campaigns is a flintlock fantasy. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like traditional sword and sorcery or urban fantasy, um, before I uh, started reading these interviews of yours, I, I, I just kind of called this period where you've got magic and gunpowder side by side revolutionary fantasy. That's, a, that's appropriate too. I mean, we're looking at a period. I mean, my books specifically are set in the period of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, so mm-hmm. roughly. 1790 through 1815 but the general period of sort of muskets being the dominant battlefield weapon goes all the way back to like 1600 or something Mm -hmm. uh and so that would definitely encompass obviously the american revolutionary war period and this about the same time 1776 and and onward um uh you know, it's sort of distinguished from steampunk because we're not into the Industrial Revolution yet. There's no steam engines. There's no railroads. Those are, yeah, steam engines, railroads, and telegraphs are probably the very important inventions that don't exist in this time period. How freeing do you find it to, to break away from the traditional sword and sorcery and actually be in this different sort of, sort of narrower time period? Well, so it's interesting because people people sort of coined this term flintlock fantasy. I didn't actually invent that. I think it was because my book and uh, Brian McClellan's series, uh, starting with Promise of Blood, which is excellent, by the way, um, came out, like, I think in the same month or, like, within a couple months of each other. Um, and they both have this kind of same general-ish setting, a sort of French Revolution-inspired setting, um, which was surprising i think to both of us but it's been a lot of fun and you know i've i've met up with brian at conventions and it's been it's been fun but um i don't feel like i don't think of it as a genre in the sense of like oh i'm gonna do more of this later like i'm just gonna you know i'm super interested in flintlock stuff rather i like to think of it as like let's get away from medieval europe and do other things but there's so much history mm-hmm. right both in time and in space there's so much 
so many possible settings that are not, you know, stone castles and plate armored knights with lances mm-hmm. and um, all our sort of traditional Tolkien D&D fantasy tropes um, that really <clears throat> are very specific to, you know, the 13th century in England, basically, is what that what that's depicting. Right. Um, so it's been really freeing, but partly not because I think of it as like, I'm just going to do Flintlock, but like, I'm going to pick something else. And then when I'm finished with this, I'm going to pick a different something else and just keep doing it. And many people are doing that these days and it's really wonderful to read. Yeah. I think, I think you were my second experience with Flintlock because have you read, um, Robin Hobbs soldier son trilogy? I have not, although I love Robin Hobbs' books. I have not read all of them, so that's not among the ones I've read. I've heard wonderful things about it. Yeah, that that I think would be my first experience with it, and I c- kind of considered more colonial fantasy at that point because it was it, it seemed very early gunpowder. This the Shadow Campaigns is so much more in depth with getting towards the Industrial Revolution. Mm. How how hard is it to actually meld magic in with that? It's a little tricky. Um, it's it's a good example of of how world building can serve story because so when I set out to write this, I had just been reading um, David Chandler's book, The Campaigns of Napoleon, which is a sort of giant campaign history of the Napoleonic Wars, um, and I really wanted to do something like that. Um, my standard origin story for these books is that I had read. Um, George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, and I really wanted to do something with like a nice historical basis, and then I had read this Napoleon book, and I'm like, ah, okay, I'm going to do this period. But um, I knew I wanted to do, to have the military stuff actually be really meaningful, that, you know, the the formations and the tactics and the, you know, the people are are, are doing things in a reasonably historical way. Um, and so that meant that the magic in the series couldn't be too overwhelming, right? It couldn't be sort of Malazan, Book of the Fallen style, demigods, flattening cities magic. Mm-hmm. Um, because that would just make all the the sort of traditional military stuff kind of irrelevant and also kind of unrealistic because, like, you know, why would you even do traditional military stuff when you've got people who can do that kind of thing? Or, you know, Wheel of Time, right, has mm-hmm. the same kind mm-hmm. of, like awesome channelers duking it out. Um, And so when I designed the magic system for these books, I kept that in mind. And so the magic is both secret in that it's sort of persecuted in their world. And at the beginning of the series, no one even really believes in it who isn't sort of in on the secret. Um, But also, you know, in terms of power, it's a little more subtle. There's a lot more sort of social powers, and even the ones that are directly kind of combat-y, you know, you might be able to fight 10 guys or 20 guys, but not a 1,000 or 10,000 as mm-hmm. as a magic user. Um, and that means it's not really going to be much of a battlefield thing. It's going to be sort of assassinations and street <clears throat> fights uh, that that's going to be really useful in. Um, and so that lets me have the magic in the books, but not have it, you know, overwhelm the historical setting to the point where it becomes un- unrecognizable. Um, and I, again, I took a cue from George R. R. Martin where, 
you know, especially at the beginning of his books, there, you know, there's a little bit of magic and he shows us the whites in the prologue to the first book to sort of promise that it's really there. But most of the stuff is still pretty much straight historical, you know, 12th century England or whatever. So I, I think, and, and I'm, I may just be uh, conjecturing here, that since, like you mentioned at the beginning of your series, that you know, very few, if any, people actually believe that magic exists, you can get that prejudice that, you know, witchcraft, black magic, you know, demonic Satan possession, all that kind of stuff. Um, do you find yourself kind of keeping to those prejudices when you're giving people these magic powers? No, well, I try not to. Um, I mean, my... I knew from the beginning that the premise here, I'm trying to decide how spoilery to get in this. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah we're getting that, into that, that territory. Can be a little spoilery if you have not read up to the current point in the series. So up to, um, uh, the, the fourth book, um, the, one of the sort of central conflicts that we have coming into the last book is the is a sort of philosophical disagreement about the role of magic and one group of people believes that it's kind of a useful tool that can be used by people for good or evil and another group believes that it's intrinsically bad and needs to be stamped out wherever possible um and i try not to sort of support either one of these sides although um, you know, it's, it's hard not to be on the side of the people who want to use magic just because it's so cool. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, uh, so it can be hard to like portray things in an, in a reasonably even handed way, but like, I'm not even sure that's really the goal because like <laughs> the goal is to portray things through the point of view of the characters and what they think of it. And so a lot of them start out as being very much like, this is terrible, these people are awful, like, what are we going to do? And sort of what experiences they have with it are what shapes uh, their views sort of through the series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rather than risk getting closer and closer to spoiler territory, as much (laughs) as I want to talk about shadow campaigns like all day, yeah. I I honestly, I I seriously want to just pick your brain so much on this. Um, One one last question, though, and this was, hopefully we can keep this a little bit broader. Okay. Um, having having read these these first four books of it, um, there are obviously plot twists and, and st- stuff like that that you have set up to pay off later in the series. How much uh, planning versus pantsing do you actually do in a, a situation like this? It's interesting because I am what I would call a converted planner. Um, I used to hate planning. I would hate writing outlines. I'd never do it. Um, when I was first writing the thousand names, it took a long time and I ended up restarting it a bunch of times for that reason. Then after, um, my agent took me on and we were trying to sell it to publishers. He's like, well, I need outlines of the rest of the series to sell to the publishers just so that they know, you know what you're doing. Um, and I was like, Oh God, I don't want to write outlines. So I did that, and it was probably, like, the hardest month or two of writing I've ever done, because mm-hmm. um, I was just so not used to it. But I did it. 
Um, and we sent it out and we sold the series. And then when the time came to write book two, I couldn't help but notice how much easier it was <laughs> that I had this outline and I was like, oh, I actually thought about this in advance and now I know what's <laughs> happening. Um, and honestly, since then, I've been outlining my books. And, you know, what I came to the conclusion was that, like, outlining is hard because it essentially concentrates all of the hard part of writing a book up at the front and with none of the fun part, mm-hmm. at least for me, um, which is sort of dealing with the characters and seeing how they play out and describing things and all that. Um, rather, you have to do all the, like, you know, plot stuff, and it's just kind of relentless because you're like, okay, okay, this happens. Okay, we don't get, like, you know, when you're when you're just writing it through, you you know, an important event happens, and then you get some sort of downtime because mm-hmm. pacing. Um, but in an outline, you're like, okay, and then they relax for a while, and then next important event happens, and you're right back into having to decide how the plot works. Yes. Um, so that makes it really hard to write the outlines, but, like... For me, at least, the effort is worth it. Um, and my outlines have been getting longer and longer. For the book I'm writing now, I ended up writing something like a 22,000-word outline, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and um, so, so yeah. So when I started the series, I didn't have that much of a plan. I had a kind of vague plan. So the series plan was really developed after The Thousand Names is written, I went back and kind of solidified all the vague thoughts that I had. Um, and some stuff changed in there. Like, in my vague idea, uh, the second book was supposed to take place simultaneously with the first book so that um, Giannis and Marcus and Winter wouldn't be in it and it would just be Racinia and some other characters. Oh, back man. Um, and I was like, what do you think of that? And my agent was like, that does not sound like a good idea because you shouldn't write a second book that doesn't have the characters from your first book in it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh, okay. But so then I tweaked the timeline and made it so that, so that's why like Giannis and Marcus and winter arrived first. And that worked out super well when I wrote the outline and I'm like, Oh, this is way better. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I can develop these characters instead of just sort of shuffling them off to the side for a while. Um, uh, so that, that turned, that was like, a sort of recommendation from a, I guess, a market perspective, like you should have your main characters in your second book that yeah. actually have to improve things enormously. <laughs> so there was a lot of stuff like that. Um, but the, the remarkable thing to me is that it's actually stuck pretty close to that old outline that I wrote. There were a few points that had changed, but not too many. Um, the the the, fi- the fifth book is actually still pretty recognizable from the outline that I wrote in like 2012. Wow, um, which shocks me. <laughs> like normally, I feel like things change more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that I'm I'm a convert. Uh, I'm going to keep that term, a converted planner, as well. I used to pants like crazy, and I never finished anything. Yeah, that was always my problem. Mm-hmm. But I found that writing an outline is almost like writing half of a first draft. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's really easy to pants your way through the first, like, 20,000 words of a book. Mm-hmm. And then I would always hit this point where I'm like, uh, I don't know what these characters want and, like, how they're going to continue. Um, but I used to think of it as it's like, because I used to play a lot of role-playing games, and it's like, it's really easy 
to get things started by just like, you know, the ninjas are, have arrived and they're attacking you and you're running away. And like, you know, that carries you through the opening because like everyone understands what it is to be attacked by ninjas. But then like at some point you need to actually like have a plot that people are involved in rather than just like we're running away from these bad guys. Yeah. The <laughs> um, ninjas. Um. And just out of curiosity, do you have a particular or like what's your outlining style? Do you use any particular formula or is it just your own method? Uh, I haven't. I mean, I've <laughs> read a bunch of books on the subject. Um, I don't think I've adopted any method wholesale. I try to keep. I try to avoid any like as much process stuff as I can. Mm hmm. Um, so I don't have like an elaborate like system because I feel like any t time you spend on like bullet points and levels of indentation or whatever is just going to wait is just, you know, detracting from actually being able to write. It's really easy to like start procrastinating with yeah. that stuff. You know, you have I'm going to develop an elaborate system of colored note cards and like you know, labels on them. And like, if that works for you, like more power to you. But m for me personally, my experience is that like, I get super involved in designing the system and use it as an excuse not to write the book. Um, so my outline is just, uh, a word document with where I just type what happens in the present tense. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it's, <clears throat> I typically shoot for like one paragraph per scene, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so the outline is just like, you know, they go to the police station. He talks to her about, you know, the case. And then they have coffee and decide to meet up later. Then a ninja attacks from the closet <laughs> or like whatever in the, happens in the scene. Um, All the ninjas. <laughs> well, they're such so useful as plot devices. Um and then, so later I can then sort of go and, and flesh that out um, into, a, into a coherent, you know, scene. But what it helps is that, like, like in the book I'm writing now, I realized <laughs> about two-thirds of the way through the outline that a particular character relationship was just not going to work out. Um, like, it wasn't going to... It didn't match the plot, and so... I needed to have the characters have a different arc. And the huge advantage is when you're doing this in an outline, changing it takes all of like 20 minutes because you just got to go back and rewrite a couple of paragraphs. Whereas if I had been pantsing up to that point, I would have had to rewrite, you know, tens of thousands of words of actual text. Shudder. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, I hate rewriting. And so this is my like every effort to avoid it. Yes. Yeah. See, that's that's where I'm right with you. Um, I, I, I do color code on my outlines, but it's only character names just so I know who's where. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, you know, I know people who do all kinds of crazy things. Mm -hmm. It works for them. So it's just a matter of, you know, it's my unique distractibility that yeah. I'm trying to engineer around. It's like with outlining, my biggest problem is running out of font colors in word. <laughs> <laughs> um, gonna, Plug in. Yeah. Okay. This this is just a this is going to be my fanboy question. Just out of curiosity, uh -huh. in the in the shadow campaigns, who is your favorite character to read, and who is your favorite character to write? Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's always hard because, in some sense, they're kind of all my favorites in different aspects. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I love Marcus because he's he's so easily flustered and and <laughs> uh-huh. you know things happen. He's like, well, what? <laughs> um, he has a sort of Doctor Watson vibe to yes. him, at times, depending on on which Doctor Watson we're talking about. Um, Giannis is one of the most fun characters to write because he's really smart and talks in a very like he the way he talks is designed to make everyone understand how smart he is. And so he has this kind of like this really highfalutin language that's really sort of fun to write. <laughs> um, and uh, so that that's exciting. Uh, Winter, I think, is probably my favorite to read just because I think she has some of my favorite really emotional scenes in mm-hmm. the story. Um, and so going back over those, I'm just like, oh, man, this is great. This is like something I'm actually interested in, even though I wrote it and I know what happens. Uh, so that would probably be my answer. But there's a lot of them. Some of those secondary characters, like the preacher um, or uh, or give him hell, are are mm-hmm. fun, you know. But like you always got to, you know, you don't want to overdo it because you know you have these sort of one note characters and you don't want them to like get boring and people to get sick of them. So you bring it in occasionally. Yeah, and I know that was kind of a cruel question, but I had to ask. That's fine. Um, <clears throat> going to start wrapping this up. If we could, just let us know what's what's coming up next after the Infernal Battalion. So, so as we said earlier, um, I've got the middle grade series, uh, which is uh, all finished now and is about a little girl who gets shipped off to her creepy uncle's house and discovers that he has a magical library <laughs> and that she can use the magical books therein to... Um, bind and uh, summon magical creatures. So it's a bit, a bit like middle grade Pokemon. Um, but uh, and then it goes on from there. Um, I, I like that series because uh, for me, it when I read Harry Potter, um, which of course I loved, uh, although these many years. Um, it struck me that, like, if we didn't really know he was a good guy, like, Dumbledore is kind of a sleazeball because he's constantly getting these little kids to do his work for him where they might easily get killed. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, uh, I think of the, the Forbidden Library as the sketchy Dumbledore scenario where, <laughs> you know, she turns up and, this you know, she finds out that she's a wizard um, and the, the guy's like, you're the chosen one. You have to help me, you know, defeat the bad guys. And then, but she gradually comes to realize, are they really the bad guys or are they just like people you don't like? Like, is this just like, you have power, so I'm going to use you to fight people I don't like. Um, and that's the kind of theme that runs through the book is this kind of like trust or distrust of authority mm-hmm. um, through that series. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, and that'll be all wrapped up. Um, I think of it as about Harry Potter level book one of diction. Um, mm. So if you are into that sort of thing or have a kid who is, uh, I recommend it. Um, and then there's going to be a little bit of a gap because we're you know going to new series. So the next thing I think that's actually coming out, I'm working on a young adult trilogy uh, for Tor. Um, our tentative title is Deep Walker, but I think we're changing that title, so it probably won't come out under that. That may be the series title, um, which I think will come out like either late next year or January of 2019, so like about a year from when this podcast releases. Um, and that's 
um, about a girl who uh, gets sent out by her government to this mysterious ghost ship with orders um, based on a threat to her family to take over the ship and bring it back so that they can use it in a war. Um, and then it turns out on the ship uh, there's a bunch of you know people who have been sort of abandoned there and they have this kind of Lord of the Flies society that she has to has to take over. Um, and that all the, all the people on the ship have magic. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's sort of fast paced and, and, um, exciting and a little brutal, which I really like. Um, so there's that. And then I have a new epic fantasy, um, coming out from orbit probably later in 2019, uh, which I have not actually written yet. Um, and also doesn't really have a title. Um, and that's going to be, it's about, um, two siblings, uh, a brother and a sister, and the sister gets sort of kidnapped by um, the magical order that trains people who have magic, and they take her off and train her to be a magical sword fighter. And he gets really mad about this and um, goes off to look for kind of forbidden magic off in the wilds, and then years later the two of them confront one another. Um and, and what comes of that. And uh, so that's going to be another sort of epic fantasy trilogy. Um, I think of it as a magical post-apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of those are a lot of fun. And then, you know, probably some other projects here and there, but those are the ones that are sort of currently bought and paid for and on my schedule. Well, those sound fantastic. I hope so. <laughs> getting there. So where can our listeners find you on the interweb? Um. I am probably most active on Twitter, where I am at Django Wexler, D-J-A-N-G-O-W-E-X-L-E-R, um, at my uh, website, which is DjangoWexler.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook, uh, although I don't post as much to Facebook these days. Um, those are probably the easiest ways. Um, I have some interesting stuff going there. Uh, right now we're running a... <laughs> a Disney battle Royale based on the conversation I had with Max Gladstone about if all the Disney owned characters, so that's Disney, Pixar, Star Wars, and Marvel had a giant fighting bracket who would come out on top. So this is going to be a long project. And every week I put up more matches for voting. Oh my Uh, gosh. (laughs) So if you go to my website, um, you can uh, you can find that, and you can find many other things uh, that I do for fun. I write up video games sometimes and other things. Um, but yeah, so website, Twitter, Facebook, come and say hi. Ding. Well, we really appreciate having you on, Jacob. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. All right, so so we've got a theme going here. Is it like the Jetsons theme? Um, no, more like Happy New Year. Oh, God. But no, um, what I'm talking about is um, promoting other people. Promoting other people, you mean like giving them a raise because we don't really make a whole lot of money in here. No, no, Are, no, 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 You no. want to, no, you're not getting a raise. No, sweetie, it's okay. It's okay, best friend. We're good. Quarter an hour, still good. Yeah. Anyway, so promoting other people. So we've just done our little seasoning in yeah. the interview promoting Django Wexler's works. He's awesome. So... What's something else that we could do to promote others? I know. What do you know? We could throw a parade. I love parades, and that would be so much fun, but that is not what I'm talking about right now. Put balloons and floats. 
Our listeners can't see that. Unless I popped all of your balloons and wrecked your floats and we recorded the the audio from that. And that's just depressing. What if we traveled to where all of our listeners are and walked outside with balloons? They would all have to become big-time patrons for us to be able to afford that, and I'm not asking that of them. Oh, the teleporter's still broken? Yeah. Okay. So how about... We could do a promo. That's much cheaper. There you go. Okay. It was my idea. Yeah. Sure. The Night Festival. You can learn what the stars have in store for you. The fate written in the sky at the moment of your birth. Kare Gafford has waited his whole life to get his fate read. But fate is cruel. The stars reveal that Care is among the fateless, those doomed souls who bring disaster and ruin to all the lives they touch. After leaving nothing but destruction in their wake, the fateless suffer horrific deaths. Unwilling to accept this destiny, Care forms a plan. He's going to find a way to change his fate or die trying. Star Signs, a novel by A.F. Grappin, available in ebook and paperback at Amazon.com. I don't know what to do next. Well, why don't you just sit down in the corner for a while? No, it's a mystery. Okay. Neil. Oh. Damn it, I gave it away. Yeah, that was that was really easy, actually. I I feel like I feel like Agatha Christie. I solved that all by myself. She didn't solve them, she wrote them. I wrote that all by myself. You are a writer. I would hope you wrote things by yourself. Otherwise, I wrote the mystery meal. Otherwise that would be plagiarism. No, you no, you didn't. Um, honey, no. That's a work from classic fiction that our listeners contributed to. And filled in, a la Mad Lib. So, no part of that was actually written by you. False. I wrote down the words that are that are lexicon. I was saying made. written in the sense that you know the the broad sense, like created, written as in created. Did you just call me a broad? I'm okay. A hang, broad. Hang, okay, hang on. we'll sort this out. You listen to the mystery mail. Let me talk to you for a second. No. So, guys. Hi. You guys ready for a mystery mail? No. Always. Well, Wait, what? You don't have to read it. Mis- Yay! Mis- mystery mail. You can, you can observe. I can just drink coffee and... You just drink coffee and... Try to mis- keep the juniorist, junior chef quiet. That works. Um, so, mystery meals are scenes from classic literature that we have made into Mad Libs and had you guys... Destroy. Yeah. Destroy. For those of you wondering how we get these uh, suggestions, go to our Facebook group, go to our Twitter... And we put up you know requests for nouns or adjectives or part you know other parts of speech. And Adverbs. yes, they are you know all caps. Oh yeah, yeah. You have to say them that way. Adverbs. Yeah, he said <laughs> adverbly. So anyway, our latest mystery meal is from of mice and men by John Steinbeck. Oh, this is the scene where George and Lenny are talking about their ideal life plan to old candy. Theo, yikes! Take it away, candy. 
Lenny watched him with wide shoulder blades, and old Candy watched him too. <laughs> Lenny said, fabulously, we could live off a of fat of the land. Sure, said George. All kins of rhubarb crumble in the garden. And if we want a little whiskey, we can sell a few French toasts or something. Or sulfuric acid. <laughs> We'd just live there. We'd belong there. There wouldn't be no more running round the linen closet and getting fed by a jack cook. No, sir. We'd have our own place where we belonged and not ordered in no bunkhouse. <laughs> Tell about the door ajar indicator, George, Lenny begged. <laughs> what did you look at? You should know better than to take a sip of coffee, Aaron. Sure, we'd have a little house and a room to ourselves, little fat, volatile stove. And in the winter, <laughs> we'd keep a peanut butter sandwich. It ain't enough. Only in the winter. <coughs> it ain't enough land, so we'd have to work too hard, maybe six, 12,603 hours a day. <laughs> we wouldn't have to buck no barley three, 35, three quarter hours a day. And when we put in a crop, why, we'd be there to take the crop up. we know what coming out of our planting. He just turned into a gangster. <laughs> An earth ponies, Lenny said he <laughs> And i take care of them. Tell them how i do that, George. Sure, you'd go out in the goose liver pate patch and you'd have a snack. You'd fill up the sack and bring it in and put it in the rabbit cages. They'd melt. And they defibrillate, said Lenny. The way they do, I seen them. Ever nanosecond or so, George continued. Man, we're really screwing. Them does would throw a litter, so we'd have plenty of rabbits to eat and waffle. Why are you so loud, Theo? I, I don't know. It's just fun. <laughs> and we keep a few wildebeests to go flying around <laughs> the windmill like they done when I was a kid. <laughs> Flying wildebeest. They looked beautifully at the wall over Lenny's head. <sighs> and it'd be our own, and no one could a can us. If we don't like a guy, we can say cheese biscuits, and by God, he's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you cheese those biscuits. You cheese them. And if a friend came along, why, we'd have a congealed bunk, and we'd say, why don't you spend the night? By God, he would. Because it's congealed, he can't get out. We'd have a handsome dog and a couple of electric cats. <laughs> but you gotta watch out, them cats don't get the little rabbits. <laughs> the electric cats. Shocking turn of events. <laughs> Lenny erupted hard. Oh, oh my. my. You just let him try to get the rabbits. I'll break their goddamn thoraxes. I'll... I'll smash him with a stick, he subsided, <laughs> grumbling to himself, threatening the future cats, which might dare to diagnose the future rabbits. <laughs> Dr. Cats. Dr. Electric Cat. George sat entranced with his own picture. <laughs> when Candy evolved, they both jumped as though they had been caught doing something reprehensible. Candy said, you know where is a place like that? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. George was on guard, bombastically. Suppose I do, he said. What's that to you? You don't need to tell me where it's at. Might be any place. Sure, said George. That's right. You couldn't find it in 844 years. <laughs> Candy went on delicately. How much they want for a place like that? 
George overcharged him suspiciously. <laughs> well, I could get it for 12 bucks. The old people that owns it is flat bust, and the old lady needs a broom. Say, what's it to you? You got nothing to do with us. Candy said, I ain't much good with only one tentacle. I don't think the junior chef approves. No, No, he doesn't. I lost my hand right here in this ranch. That's why they give me a job swamping. (laughs) (laughs) And they give me $16 because I lost my hand. And I got 444,444,444 more saved up right in the bank. (laughs) Right now. That's 300. And I got 50 more coming at the end of the month. <laughs> That's you, not how the math works. <laughs> tell you what, he leaned forward painstakingly. I suppose it's because of his hand. <laughs> suppose I went in with you guys. That's three hundred and fifty bucks I'd put in. I ain't much good, but I could giggle and ejaculate the chickens and snort the garden some. How'd that be? <laughs> I could giggle and ejaculate the chickens. George. Ha- George half-closed his souls. I gotta think about that. We was always gonna do it by ourselves. How do you half-close your soul? (coughs) Specifically souls, plural. But the earth ponies. But the earth earth ponies. The earth ponies. And the peanut butter sandwich. Kept in the stove in the winter. Well, you do like putting sandwiches in things. I do like putting sandwiches in things. (laughs) So that's how this works. Keep your eyes on our Facebook group and our Twitter for question for uh, requests for the next one. For parts of speech. And I will take on a questionable accent of a variety, various nature. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And get really loud. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right. We have reached an accord. Very I, well. I won't kill you. Today. But you don't get to call me abroad anymore. Can I call myself one? Oh, I'll, I'll shoot. Uh, let me get you a mirror. That's not very nice. What? You sh- you look very nice. I thought you should look at yourself. Aw. Happy New Year. Yeah, I saw that one coming. <laughs> I think it's time that we wound things down so Aaron can get past this being January 1st and stop singing. Well, you know, see, the thing is. Oh, God. I have three junior chefs. We know. They took over the kitchen. I know, right? Age seven and under. I still can't get the cheese grater away from them. But uh, when you have three small children like that, generally you sleep through New Year's. So unlike most people who don't have small children, I slept last night. So happy New Year. Happy New Year. Can I take a nap now? Yeah, go. Okay. Okay. So now that it's just us guys, here here's the here's the deal. We we have our usual things, and the offer to recompense <laughs> or reward or other R words um, submissions with items from the Box of Doom is over. I have a feeling it may come back because the Box of Doom is expansive. So we'll we'll see what happens, but we do need submissions, guys. Particularly stoke the fires. We really desperately need those. And we have prompts, which I'll get to in a minute. But first, 
you know, if, if you don't want to write, you can always go to our Patreon. That whole fiasco about the fees, we were debating getting rid of it, but our Patreon's still going to be here. So you can go to patreon.com slash afgrappin and help support us financially. It, it really is a big help. It goes towards fees, and we're trying to get to the point where we can actually, you know, pay you cash dollars for your for your stories instead of with swag or either or, you know. But anyway, so there's Patreon. You can also go to iTunes, find The Melting Podcast, and give us like 70 stars and a review because that's really nice and helps other people find us who could potentially become patrons who could help us pay you for your stories. Get that? Good. And you can also go to our shop at shop.spreadshirt.com slash the melting podcast and you can get physical swag there as well with again the proceeds going towards funding the podcast you can get shirts aprons mugs uh i think that's all we got right now no we got pins yeah we got we got all kinds of stuff on there that's just it's cool stuff go go get go get some hey aaron you awake yet yeah power nap i'm good what's up prompts i love prompts yeah well, you know, prompts get people to send us stories, they, especially stoke the fires. Yeah, we, we need those. We we need stoke the fires. Um, now, sadly, prompt number thirteen. Don't say it. Okay, say it because they need to know. Yeah, good because they can't see my interpretive dance. Yeah, yeah. Prompt which no- is good for them. Prompt number thirteen is now closed. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do that every time the prompt closes, don't I? It's it's it, sad. It's heart wrenching. It's you know once every three months. But, so, you know, we still have prompt 14 open, and prompt 14 is, a rash of people have entered the emergency room, all of them exhibiting superpowers. And you know, when one prompt dies, another one is born. And in that vein, we have prompt number 15. There is an expiration date for your birth certificate. It's only a few days away. Now, I do have to tell something about that prompt. And what is that? Let me pull up the email. (laughs) (laughs) So, that prompt is one of the ones that was sent to us by Nick Svensson Dating. I hope I pronounced that right. If I didn't, I am so sorry. Um, But he is that fan I told you that we suddenly have in Denmark. Yay! Who sent us like a dozen prompts. Mm-hmm. And I love them so much that we're just going to go ahead and use one. Yeah, I actually, I saw this prompt and I couldn't not decide this was the one we needed to go with next. This yeah. one made me so happy. Yeah, so 1,500 words or fewer. We desperately need Stoke the Fire stories, guys. So keep them short, keep them punchy, and keep them within those prompts. Especially since these prompts we have right now are two of my favorites we've ever had. I mean, we've had the silly fun ones, like the Mystic Cheese and... The bathroom. Bathroom and using one of us. But this one, I mean, birth certificate expiring? Mm Mm-hmm. That is good stuff, guys. Yeah, you can go into a lot of genres with that, so... And I can't wait to hear what you guys send us. And like I said, we might still be paying you in swag. We would love to. Yeah, so get those pens, pens and pencils out. Get those keyboards warmed up. Make sure that the USB stick is turned the correct way before inserting. <laughs> Insert. Oh God, and and get and get writing. We we need stuff. We need you to send us stuff. So you know what you should do? Send us stuff, and we'll use it to feed the masses. Happy New Year. 
happy 2018, guys. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff.